0: QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out READ for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com apps. Again, that is qxmd.com a-p-p-s. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. And wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Now, this is a rapid reaction episode. So an important trial was published you want to know about it, but maybe haven't had time to dive in just yet. Start right here. So today's article is the Hydrocortisone in Severe Community Acquired Pneumonia, or the Cape Cod Trial. That was published online ahead of print in the New England Journal of Medicine. This unfortunately not an open access article, but I'm guessing most have access to, to a New England Journal of Medicine content. Carolyn McGee-Bell joined me. What a wealth of knowledge. She's a great guest, very thankful that she had the time for us. So let's pull up that PDF or the printed papers and let's dig in. So very thankful to be joined by Carolyn McGee-Bell, currently the medical surgical ICU clinical pharmacy specialist at the Medical University of South Carolina, MUSC. Her Twitter handle is at CMcGeePharmD, and it's fitting that we are discussing the Cape Cod trial as Carolyn returns from vacation. Now let us in. Was it a good getaway?
1: It was, it was. We did a brief little trip to, to Cancun, Mexico for a wedding. So nice to, to get away for a little bit.
0: Oh, that sounds amazing. Yeah, as we're, as we're greeted with monsoons across the country, um, a cocktail on a Mexican beach sounds uh, pretty fantastic right now. Um, now, we're going to kind of shift from the exact opposite of cocktails on a Mexican beach. And let's get into... Um, uh, rapid reaction, breaking news, New England Journal of Medicine podcast, the Cape Cod trial. So, Karen, what we'll do is I'll kind of read a little bit of background for the listeners, get a little bit of like a study description so they know what we're talking about. You'll kind of give some of the heavy hitting results, and then we'll kind of talk about some of the points, things that stood out to us, things that we liked, didn't like, et cetera, kind of give the listeners a really good uh, overview of this trial and, and how we think we may be able to apply it to some of our patients. Does that sound good? Sounds good. So the uh, Community Acquired Pneumonia Evaluation of Corticosteroids, or the Cape Cod Trial, was published in New England Journal of Medicine. It's all the things we like, right? Double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled, superiority, multi-center trial. It took place in 31 French hospitals, enrolled patients from October of 2015 through March 2020. Um, now, the inclusion criteria, it was adult ICU patients, and they needed a diagnosis of CAP, which meant they needed radiographic evidence on a chest X-ray or CT, and they even kind of clarified in the comments that if you had COPD, it needed to be a new infiltrate there, um, and you needed to have two plus of the following, right? Cough, purulent sputum, chest pain, or dyspnea, right? Those cardinal symptoms, and it needed to be within 48 hours of hospital admission, trying to make sure, right, that we kept those community patients and um, not get into like the hospital acquired things. Now, they, they then further define severe CAP as having at least one of the following, right? So the first one is having a pneumonia severity index or a PSI of greater than 130. Basically, what this is, it's a validated mortality prediction tool that classifies patients into five groups in CAP with increasing risk of mortality. So in this last group, right, the group that they are including these patients in, it's a mortality of about 25 to 30%. They need to be receiving either non-invasive, uh, ventilation like um, BiPAP, etc., or they're ventilated. Um, they need to be on high flow oxygen with at least 50% O2 and a P to F ratio of less than 300. Now, they did change that from less than 200, which is what they did at the beginning of the study. Um, the study drug was started within 24 hours of those severe symptoms starting. And then um, at least one dose of antibiotics was given um, since admission to the hospital. So prior to study enrollment. Um, key exclusion criteria that I want to highlight. So septic shock at study inclusion. Um and we'll talk about this a little bit, but the the guidelines, the IDSA guidelines, right, they kind of recommend this already, so they wanted to, the authors wanted to exclude these patients. They excluded patients who uh, were uh, influenza positive with the PCR, or, or clinical history suggesting of gastric content aspiration. So those are kind of the three of four biggest common reasons, and the not meeting um, severity criteria is the other one. Now, antibiotics were at the discretion of the clinician in charge. I um, mean, then the patients in the intervention group, right? So it was hydrocortisone versus placebo. And um, in the intervention group, they received eight or 14 days of hydrocortisone. In the hydrocortisone, you guessed it, it is 200 milligrams as a continuous infusion over 24 hours. And then they eventually kind of titrate that down. Uh, their primary outcome was 28-day all-course mortality. Uh, secondary outcomes, right, the need for um, advancement in the respiratory care, right, the need for non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, the need for ventilation, the duration of the ventilation, um, what was their 28-day ventilator and vasopressor free days, what was their vasopressor use? Right, because uh, an important clarification is they excluded patients who had septic shock at inclusion, but once they were included, and if they developed septic shock, they were allowed to use those pressors and things. So they looked at that um, ICU length of stay um, and then ninety-day mortality. So they needed uh, they calculated close to twelve hundred patients, right, for a twenty-five percent relative risk reduction with about eighty percent power. So. Carolyn, it, it seems like a really kind of well-designed, well-done study. So what did, what did this study find?
1: Yeah, so um, the primary outcome, as you mentioned, was 28-day um, 28, 28 mortality. So they did find a reduction in 28-day mortality, um, 6.2% in the hydrocortisone group versus 11.9% in the placebo group. Do want to point out that mortality in both groups was much lower than what they used for their power calculation. Mm-hmm. Um, there was reduced 90 day mortality. So that was, uh, 9.3% in the hydrocortisone group versus 14.7 in the, um, in the placebo group. They also reduced 28 day mechanical ventilation incidence and, uh, reduced 28 day vasopressor use. Um, and then when looking at those adverse effects, they did see that the hydrocortisone group required a higher amount of insulin. And unfortunately they didn't look at like whether that hyperglycemia was reversible or not. So did that increase in insulin kind of still control um, their blood glucose?
0: Yeah, that was an important point that I would have liked to see, but I guess try to think glass half full. At least they calculated the insulin requirements, right? It made the thing that stood yeah. out to me was that the patients not on, not on steroids needed like 20 units, right? So clearly they're, they're needing it a lot now. I have a question for you, right? As a as a, a researcher, um, is there some trickery here? I have a question: Is this is um, do the statisticians when they don't put in the p values for these hazard ratios, are they trying to trick us to to catch if we're able to see if these ratios are significant or not? Because I just find it ironic that in this table, right and um, it's uh, the classic primary and secondary outcome table in the article. When you go into the secondary outcomes, right, the, the incidence of, of ventilation by 28 days the, and all these things, a lot of them are, are um, significant, but one isn't. And I almost think they don't put the P values there to just to almost like trick you into reading it. Now, is that me being cynical um, or is that like, a, is that a trick that um, the, is in the research world that, that you all use?
1: yeah I, I don't know I mean maybe it was a good thing you you looked at it more closely right um, <laughs> yeah. but you know maybe it's an attempt to have us focus less on the p- values and focus more on the on the confidence interval or the hazard ratio
0: yeah that makes that makes a really good a really good point now um one thing to point out right we said that they enrolled patients up until March of 2020 so this is a really kind of big piece with this study, right? So the results were really impressive, right? You hit on it, like primary outcome, even though the, the, the power calculation, they used a much higher rate than what the they found in this study, an impressive reduction. They had tons of those secondary outcomes that were significant, but the study was terminated at the second interim analysis. Now the significance level wasn't reached, right? So they, they, technically should have had the extra 400 patients. And when they, the data and safety monitoring board, they they list three specific reasons, right? So they said the enrollment of those last 400 patients wouldn't change results, became ethically unacceptable to continue the placebo arm. And then I think this is probably one of the biggest keys here is that they, they suspended inclusions due to COVID, right? So- mm-hmm if, if you're then, so they, they met on July, 2021. So imagine if you're a center that hadn't enrolled a single patient since March of 2020, I can only imagine yeah. how that would go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and so they kind of stopped the randomization and then um, the big gap, right. Isn't because then they decide not to resume the trial and then they just started the trial analysis here. So um, I guess it's something probably to keep with a caveat. Does it make this, does it make the results completely kind of um, not as positive in your opinion, or how does that affect your interpretation of these?
1: Well, I think one thing that you have to keep in mind is, you know, steroids and CAP have been controversial and we've kind of gone back and forth a bunch, but all the other trials have been relatively small. Like this one is still bigger than everything else combined, I think. Um, so I think there still is, I think the sample size still is one of the strengths, but, um, you know, whenever there's things like this that happen in trial, uh, I don't know 100% what to make of it when mm-hmm. it's, you know, stopped early, interrupted because of COVID. Um, but it still is a, a pretty big, large, randomized, multicenter trial.
0: Yep. What You, you mentioned, right, the, the largeness of the trial with it. What would you say are, are other kind of strengths that stand out to you when, when you kind of peruse through this?
1: Yeah, I think um, some of the other strengths was that they administered steroids super early. Mm-hmm. I think it was like 15 hours from ICU admission or like 20 hours from um, hospital admission. So they got steroids in and they got them in quick. Um, as I mentioned, it was multi-center, double-blind, placebo-controlled. There were 32 sites. Most of these other trials are single-center um, in smaller studies. And there's minimal loss to follow up. There's only two patients that they weren't able to follow up on. So I think those are some of the other big strengths. And one of the other things that I also really appreciated is they did a secondary analysis looking at some biomarkers. So they found that maybe steroids are most beneficial in patients with uh, CRP greater than 15 milligrams per deciliter. So don't necessarily love CRP, but like that they're thinking about biomarkers to potentially help guide who may be who have the most benefit um, from steroids.
0: I also like that the the authors they they look like they worked really hard to to prevent these corticosteroid adverse effects, right? They mentioned that they yeah. they started the insulin when their sugar got greater than one eighty. They they tried to do best practice with neuromuscular blockers, right? Limiting it to uh-huh. getting interruptions every twelve hours. They you know they monitor eyes and nose and patient's weight. It said due to sodium retention. I think that would just happen in the ICU in general. But like again, doing all these <laughs> things that. Um, I think you would argue is, is more of a, of a standard of care with a lot of this stuff now, right? Insulin, you know, not having everyone paralyzed for days on end. Um, but I like that the authors made a point that they did that, emphasize that to show like um, even in the research setting, right? They're following the same things that we're trying to do um, at the bedside themselves.
1: Yeah, I think I, I like that you pointed out they tried to mitigate adverse events. I think that's why they chose the continuous infusion hydrocortisone. When I was first reading it, it was like continuous infusion, like French people must love this. Like Anon must have really ingrained this into like French critical care culture. Um, but they kind of explained a little bit more why. And it was so that they could try and, you know, manage and control glucose as best as possible.
0: Now, I will say this out of curiosity because you're exactly right. I, I That was the first thing I noticed I laughed at um, yeah. <laughs> because of, cor- of course it is, right? Now, yeah. so I searched out of curiosity some compatibility questions with hydrocortisone and not only am I shocked at how compatible it is, I'm guessing that the French did all of these studies. I mean, it's compatible <laughs> with like I tried to do what I thought is like the bigger drugs, right? Like vaso, prope, piptazo, levo, heparin, fentanyl, epi, like all those. So I was like, all right, at least at least we're not needing a dedicated line for for hydrocortisone. And that's and they did say the authors did note that they they picked that the continuous infusion to prevent blood glucose variability. Um, do like, do we actually, my question is all of us are on a hydrocortisone shortage right now. And I think everybody is, of course, this comes out this, this awesome study showing these benefits of hydrocortisone when everyone is bailing water out of a, a sinking hydrocortisone ship. But would a continuous infusion actually help our drug shortage situation? instead of doing the 50 milligrams from one vial four times a day, right? You do the 200, just thinking creatively for a sec.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think it depends on how you're handling your shortage. We took it, took all the hydrocortisone out of all of our Omni cells. So they're prepping it all in the IV room. So they're able to pull up, oh. you know, 50 without wasting. Got it. Um, but maybe, maybe if that, if other folks are, you know, taking 50 out of a hundred milligram vial and wasting the other 50. Perhaps it could cut down on some waste.
0: Um, so speaking about hydrocortisone, right? What what were your thoughts when you saw out of the corticosteroid that they used in a CAP study? What were your thoughts when you saw that it was hydrocortisone?
1: Yeah, I, I did some digging into this because it's like hydrocortisone, I'm not sure. Like I most of these people I would think had ARDS because you had to have a PDF mm-hmm. of less than 300. I mean, they didn't go over all the criteria, but I would imagine that a very large portion of these patients have a- had ARDS. The median
0: the so, median uh, value, the median P to F was like 140, regardless of the yeah. of what they were doing respiratory-wise. So, yeah, yeah, less than 150, right? Yeah, absolutely.
1: So, most of them had, yeah, probably severe ARDS, too. So... Um, I would think that you would want to choose something that had less mineralocorticoid activity. And I think that's one of the things that's still up for debate. You know, a lot of these trials have used methylprednisolone and hydrocortisone, but we've seen that there's kind of been a trend in all other kind of ARDS, COVID, all these other uh, trials towards using dexamethasone or something that has less mineralocorticoid activity. So I've, I think that's maybe something to potentially look at in the future on the trend of, you know, um, dexa ARDS and um and all the covid trials so maybe something to look at in the future
0: yeah i kind of expected to see dexamethasone to be honest with you with the with all the positives it's we've seen with that agent in ards specifically um that was the thing that stood out to me and and um in one of the supplementary like uh, packets or whatever the the authors state that they, they ask, you know, they're talking about some of the trials that are coming out, like the, the mm-hmm. ESCAPE trial with Maduri, and they are criticizing those trials for using methylpred. They're like, how mm-hmm. could you not use hydrocortisone? Um, and the basis, the foundation of, of this recommendation is a, a 2005 um, article from the uh, Blue Journal that is uh, looking at the use of hydrocortisone, um, again, continuous infusion. The primary endpoint was just a P to F improvement, right? But then they had the mm-hmm. secondary endpoint of improvement in mortality and things. And I'm trying to look, it was forty six patients, right? But that's that's yeah, the basis of this tall. study. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. And you see who the senior author is on that?
0: Oh yeah, it's none other so than none other.
1: for not following Majorie's own <laughs> previous work.
0: <laughs> I know we're That's supposed. That's interesting. We're supposed to have a 28 day methylpred taper in this. What is what's this? What's this easy? This easy seven day no taper in this study. But yeah, so that is the thing that I'm struggling with the most. Is I do buy that steroids help in severe cap but the the idea of which one to choose which dose, that's the one that I'm having like the biggest problem with and um, trying to sort out because like if you're doing dose conversions, 200 of hydrocortisone does not convert to very much methylpred. So it's not like it's even a, any type of conversion that's happening or things.
1: Yeah, I think that's going to be a question that we'll still have. You know, which steroid should we use and at what dose? So I think some of that remains to still be established. So um, hopefully we'll have some, some other trials coming down the pipe to help answer some of those questions.
0: Now, the, the authors also uh, have a, um, a, a taper of the hydrocortisone and they, um, their kind of attempt to do personalized medicine in this research trial, mm-hmm. which I think is really cool is basically on day four, if, if, The doc thought they had a high probability of of discharging from the ICU before two weeks, and they met some specific criteria, basically just getting better respiratory-wise. They could kind of have a quicker taper that started. So instead of having a 14-day taper where you get seven days of that full dose and you taper down, you get four days of the full dose and then you taper down. Now, they have a full taper, they have all these things, but the thing that stood out to me was... Um, the moment they left the ICU, the therapy just got completely stopped. Yeah. So you're doing, I'm just imagining the, the poor person who's putting in these linked orders and all this stuff. And then the next day they got discontinued. And I think this shows that like having a taper is a great idea, but shorter courses like this, right? Less than seven days. And the median here was five and six days of this. It's probably okay to just stop and not have like a week long yeah. taper.
1: Yeah, I love the intent behind it, you know, personalized medicine, like you said, and mm-hmm. really it was just looking at is the patient getting better or not? Um, are they breathing spontaneously? Do they have a P to F greater than 200? Do they have an improved SOFA score? And do they have a high probability of being discharged from the ICU soon? So I think it, it was a good attempt. But like you said, yeah, if it's, if it's less than, you know, median time of five days, do we really even need to taper? But I think with steroids across the board, even looking at septic shock, no one can decide on that either. You know, a lot of those trials did five days or stop when they leave the ICU or taper or stop when they're off vasopressors. So I think um, weaning of of steroids is something that is like more of an art than a science. And, you know, our physician colleagues are kind of going to do whatever they think is best. I work with a lot of pulmonologists. I'm not going to argue with them about steroids. (laughs) Uh,
0: That like... They may, people could ask my opinion on it, and I'll let them know. But if you want to taper yeah. over a week, ha- have sure. fun. I, that's exactly right. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. I'm not losing sleep over things like that. You're. You're exactly right. Um, and then the other big important thing, right? They were looking at the efficacy, and a lot of that was was pretty impressive. Um, the other important point was that they found no real big safety concerns, right? No huge tick, uh, tick up in infection. Um, no, I believe that's exactly right. I would like to see a little more about the glucose stuff, but they, you know, they talked about insulin. They started it when it's greater than 180. Um, I, I I don't know. I I have to think that as long as you what we think about with. With the steroids, is shorter course. You control their sugar. It should be reversible. Um, but like you said, I would have liked to see that. Now, my question always too, when I look at a trial like this, and I'm sure you're the same way, is like, all right, let's think about the patients that I'm treating that I see right in our units. So, when yeah. you look at like the the patients in this trial, and let's we can bring up the fact that they're that it's it's French versus the U.S., which I think is one thing in and of itself. But thinking about just the the patients and their history themselves, like. How do you think we can apply this to kind of U.S. patients?
1: So I think for me, like I see a ton of immunocompromised patients. Like my patients are primarily like human DMT, lung transplant patients. And there was a really small population of of immunocompromised patients in this trial. So I don't really know how to apply it to a patient population like that. Um, But um, and just some other things. So only 6% of people were immunocompromised. Yep only 21% had COPD. I feel like I see a little bit larger of a COPD population than that. Mm -hmm. And um, the median P to F ratio was 140. Um, So These patients were pretty sick. Um, And I think, um, you know, earlier I was talking about them having a much lower mortality. And I was reading this trial thinking like, okay, were these patients just not as sick? And that's why they had like a 12 and 6% mortality rate when they originally estimated like in the 20s. But the median P to F of 140, a bunch of people were on the ventilator. A bunch of people were on pressers. So I think this group was pretty sick. Um, so I think if I were to apply this, and starting to look at some of the secondary analysis, probably going to be people that are more severe. Um, maybe people with a higher CRP, um, if that's something that you all get at your institution. Um, so I think those are maybe the the folks that I would lean more towards using this on particularly in a shortage situation when we have to be even more judicious than we normally would
0: that's a really good point mentioning the immunosuppressed patients because um you know kind of jumping ahead right the when talking about the antibiotics that they used right and one of the points yeah. is that it was at the discretion of the clinician in charge right so basically it was up to the ICU physician or the team what they used and um, basically third generation cephalosporin and macrolide is what almost 75 per 75 to 80% of patients got yeah. and when you're actively immunosuppressed right they're probably not necessarily getting our, your generic CAP coverage. You might, but you're at risk for some of those other organisms. So I'd be curious, thinking of CAP, but in those patients who may be at risk for some of those other things, what might that have looked like? Um, but thinking of the, the non-immunosuppressed population, this kind of translate into, at least looking at yeah. the CAP treatment, what, what you're typically using, right? More or less. So I think it translates yeah, sure. well. Um, Now, what about the, what stood out to you from the pathogens that they isolated? Because they had a really long chart that kind of showed all of them, which um, is nice to look at.
1: Yeah, you have to dig a little bit. That's in the supplemental (laughs) appendix. Oh, yeah, you do. do. (laughs) Um, But they do kind of break down what um, what pathogens they see. I did think that this was a little bit of a weakness of a trial, is that they left... you know, the pathogen discovery to the discretion of the medical team. So there was no standardized approach to, you know, what type of cultures are we going to get on what day and um, from, from where. Um, So when they broke it down on the supplemental appendix, um, 47% in the hydrocortisone group and then 42.5% in the placebo group had no pathogen identified. Um, So that's a pretty big population of people that didn't have a pathogen identified at all. And some of my thoughts on that were, was this because they didn't have cultures? Was this because no bug was identified? Or was this because, you know, this was stopped early because of COVID? So in those early days, we didn't have reliable, readily available COVID testing. So was a portion of these patients, maybe some of those early COVID patients who we know benefit from steroids? Um so just some thoughts that I had when I was when I was reading through
0: it. That's a really really smart point. I you have to think probably we'll never know, but you have to imagine yeah. probably yes, right? I think all of us are realizing that November, December, January, definitely February, it was out there more and more and the, the that flu that we thought we had was was probably that hitting home a little bit earlier. Um and yeah, that's always the When it's left at the discretion of the team, sometimes I feel like I have to fight tooth and nail to get people to send a sputum culture, right? When it's like, that's ultimately what we're treating. So that question is kind of the big unknown, but you know, isn't it something like 40% of sepsis is culture negative? So this being 47, it would kind of be, it would be in line, but it would definitely show that maybe there's some other stuff happening, happening with that.
1: One of the things that I thought was interesting too, is that culture negative um, pneumonia, that actually favored being even more beneficial for hydrocortisone. So, um, was it because it was more viral? Was it because, you know, I, I don't know.
0: Yep. Yep. So we've, we've kind of taken this with a little bit of a, of a fine tooth comb. Now, before we get into kind of like our ultimate takeaways, kind of the things we're thinking about, I want to have some fun facts because, um, like Carolyn said, Finding some of the stuff in this trial was um, challenging. You're combing through lots of papers. But with that, we found some fun stuff. All right. Now, first things first. Now, I told Carolyn there's no cheating here, so we will see if this happened. But in the trial, it talks about what their research budget was for this trial. So, Carolyn, what's your guess as to what they're and the answer is in euros. What do you think the, oh. the, the funding was for a trial this big?
1: So I was thinking about this. I'm a, I'm sure this includes like the salary for all the research search coordinators at each of the sites, right? It has to be. Yep. And there's thirty-two sites, so that's gotta be a big chunk of the salary or of the of the budget. I'm probably gonna be way off, but I'm gonna say like three million. This was
0: shockingly lower than I expected. One point six two million. Okay. Yeah. And um, I like that this is one of the the studies I probably just haven't looked at them in other studies, but they, they talk about the trial costs and then they literally talk about this was one of the the first trials for like the trigger set, like the Crix network and yeah. that they felt they had to do the 28 day mortality as their primary outcome to justify the cost of this big research study. So it's like, okay, I mean, I can, I can certainly, I can certainly buy that. All right. So, uh, fun fact number one. All right. So fun fact number two. How does a trial this big pick the author order? I'm always fascinated by this stuff because I know there are some people that this is the number one thing that they're thinking about if they're getting involved. So let's go through. So the the first author is the principal investigator. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. But then the second, third, and fourth author, this is what surprised me. It is investigators from the first, second, and third highest recruited site. So if you just work- I just
1: feel like that's pretty common. It like is, okay. Like the more patients okay. you recruit or enroll, the higher up. I feel like normally the primary author and the senior author are like pre-specified, right? It's the people that yeah. come up with the idea.
0: And then the methodologist. That's the that's the, yeah. that's the last author. Yep. Okay. All right. Yes. Okay. So maybe just a fun fact for Nick, but I love seeing that. So now, you know, <laughs> if you're looking, you're like, ooh, Dr. Mezziani is running the biggest uh, French hospital in this study. Um <laughs> And then uh, they also note, right, that this trial got stopped because of COVID. So they called this a quote unquote trial within a trial. So basically they had this study and then COVID happened and they were like, well, not only do we have a a, a, um, obligation with the pandemic happening to try to do some positive research there, but then obviously how much is that going to skew a pulmonary study having this unknown respiratory virus, right? So they paused the Cape Cod trial researched and published the Cape COVID trial. And then they went back to the Cape Cod trial and then they ultimately decided, you know, book is closed, et cetera. But, um, I thought that was really cool. I'd never heard that described as a trial within a trial. And then the last thing, because I was looking at some of these and some of the background information. And if you're curious why there's not, um, ethnic or racial kind of data in the, in the baseline characteristics, French law restricts the collection of that in research. So you will never find that in any French study. Hmm. All right. Four fun facts from a very fun Cape Cod study. So Carolyn, as as we close this out and we think about kind of our ultimate takeaways, I guess kind of the, my big question for you is how obviously do you feel like this is going to influence you using steroids and pneumonia? And do we feel like the, the book is written. Do we know, is there is there a trial or two coming that maybe will help clarify? Is it hydrocortisone? Is it just 200 milligrams? You know, kind of answering some of these questions, I think, that you and I and, and maybe others still have.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, and I think what's really interesting about the timing is the shortage, right? Like if hydrocortisone weren't on shortage, I'd probably be like way more apt to like start trying this or like be yeah. way more open like when my pulmonologist suggests it. But with the shortage, it's like, I don't know what to do with this right now. Not to mention your IDSA and ATS guidelines don't recommend it. The new um, ESICM um, guidelines, which like literally just came out this month, um, recommend yep. only using it in people that have um, septic shock. Um, so I don't know. It's, it's way bigger than all the other trials. So that's what I am cautiously optimistic that maybe we'll have some interesting results and then um i'm interested to see what the results are of the remap cap trial like the non-viral one um to see if that will replicate these same results
0: you know it's funny that when a study like this like a, a big what feels like potentially practice changing study comes out doesn't it feel like there's always one thing that's off? Like if this just could have been methylpred 40 BID, I feel like the the uptake would be like, I'm all in. Let's go. That makes complete sense. But there's like just enough questions. We have the shortages. Um, so, and, and you know, obviously there are, um, I'll be curious what others kind of opinions are, but I think everyone kind of shares the same sense of like, It feels like cautious optimism would be how I describe Uh it. And um, I think if you're not dealing with a shortage and you're able to use this, I think you might. But yeah, if you're if you're currently bailing water, I think you'll probably be a little more selective. And it sounds like there may be more things to come um, for something like this. and So we may have an answer here, um, hopefully shortly. Um, Well, I think, Carolyn, I think I'm looking. I think we hit most of our big points here what a, what an awesome review. I literally captured you as you came back from vacation, um, which as always, as people know, right. When you, when you go on vacation, you, when you come back, it's almost like you're doing double to make up for it and you squeeze this in. So I know myself and the listeners, uh, really appreciate, uh, learning, um, and getting to, uh, hear all your knowledge about this uh, trial. So thank you so much.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me, and I'm I'm really interested to to hear what some of the listeners think too.
0: Yep, that's exactly right. So reach out, Carolyn's Twitter handle at c farm d. Um, now the other thing, Carolyn, next time if we discuss an article named after an Eastern island promise, hands up, we'll head there for the discussion. So if they have like right. a like a Nantucket trial, you will see us uh, on the Cape talking about these things in the future. So we'll put a pin in that. Um, but thanks again so that much. That better Carolyn. be a
1: promise. We should shake on it. <laughs> it was a virtual Virtually. shake.
0: Didn't you, didn't you see yeah. that? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks again, Carolyn. Yeah. Thank
1: you. Thanks for thinking of me.
0: Another big thanks to uh, Carolyn and uh, very curious what everyone's thoughts are on this trial. So please reach out pharmacy to dose T O dose on Twitter and Instagram uh, or via email uh, pharmacy to at gmail.com uh, the reference list with some of the articles we talked about, some of those guidelines it's featured in that episode description as well as the website pharmacy to dose.com until next time I'm Nick Peters
1: and this is It's Pharmacy to Dose, the critical care podcast.